Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer, and on this podcast I have long informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. For this episode, I had the privilege of talking with Professor Eric Wolf. He works at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge. He's a Royal Society Research Professor. He works on climate change and Earth-ocean-atmosphere interactions. He works on ice cores and past climate. Um, he's also a uh, an honorary fellow at the British Antarctic Survey and a fellow of Darwin College, which is part of the University of Cambridge. Yeah, so we'll get to the interview in just a couple of minutes. If you want to skip all of this, I'm going to talk a little bit. If you want to skip all this, it's totally fine. I won't be offended even a little bit. Um, You can skip to the music. If you're new to podcasts, which uh, you might be, I don't know. Uh, I don't know where you're coming from. Um, Often, that's what you can do. You can skip skip the intro, skip the person talking, and uh, just get right to the interview if you want by going ahead to the music. Um, I wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk through an article that showed up on the New York Times, um, not because I'm an expert on this particular area. I'm not. I'm an oceanographer. Uh, that's my world. But this is certainly, uh, it has to do with diet and what you eat and its effect on climate change. And uh, again, you know, I'm not an expert in this particular area. But um, I think because this is such a common question and a common part of the package of like, how do we respond to climate change kind of as individuals, um, diet is often something that comes up a lot. And so I thought it was worth talking through a little bit. So the uh, article basically goes through a series of questions. It's, a very, it's got a very nice question and answer kind of format. And it showed up on a, if you're looking for it, it showed up on a, April 30th, 2019, and it's called Your Questions About Food and Climate Change Answered. Um, and again, I'm th- this is not me reading this pretending to be a perfect practitioner of these things. It's just an important part of the overall conversation. So I'm going to read you some excerpts from it, basically. Does what I eat have an effect on climate change? That's the first question that shows up on the page. Yes, the world's food system is responsible for about one quarter of the planet warming greenhouse gases that humans generate each year. That includes raising and harvesting all the plants, animals, and animal products we eat beef, chicken, fish, milk, lentils, kale, corn, and more, as well as processing, packaging, and shipping food to markets all over the world. If you eat food, you're part of this system. How exactly does food contribute to global warming? Lots of ways. Uh, when forests are cleared to make room for farms and livestock, that's uh, large stores of carbon are released into the atmosphere, which heats up the planet. When cows, sheep, and goats digest their food, they burp up methane, another potent greenhouse gas contributing to climate change. There's a few more. Um, but the uh, the big one, there's this infographic that you may have seen going around that kind of summarizes which foods have the largest impact in, term, in terms of your personal carbon emissions. Meat and dairy, particularly from cows, have an outsized impact, with livestock accounting for around 14.5% of the world's greenhouse gases each year. That's roughly the same as the emissions from all the cars, trucks, airplanes, and ships combined in the world today. In general, beef and lamb have the biggest climate footprint per gram of protein, while plant-based foods 
tend to have the smallest impact. Pork and chicken are somewhere in the middle. So there's a study that they mentioned that was published in the journal Science um, last year. I think it was last year. Let me check. I'll just click on it and tell you. It was uh, Poor, Poor and Nemec. Nemechek. I'm probably saying that wrong. Sorry. Sorry to, to Nemechek for mispronouncing your name. Yeah, it came out on the 1st of June, 2018. So yeah, uh, ne- nearly a year ago. And the uh, it, it, the kind of takeaway graphic from this is uh, it shows you the average greenhouse gas impact in kilograms of CO2 of getting 50 grams of protein from various sources. Beef is at the top by far 17.7 kilograms of CO2 per 50 grams of protein. Um, so the, uh, it, it, it's, uh, leads the list. Lamb is the next one down at 9.9 and, uh, way down at the bottom of the list, we've got milk, tofu, beans, nuts. All of those are one or smaller in terms of kilograms of CO2 for getting 50 grams of protein from these things, from these sources. So that gives you a pretty clear picture. Um, well, I mean, it turns out that the picture is a little bit more complicated than that, but I think the important takeaway is like, yeah, things like milk, tofu, beans, and nuts, according to this, you know, metric and this way of quantifying it, um, which again, this is not my area, so I'm not in a position to quantify the, the scientific or like to criticize or really dig into the scientific part of this. I'm just a reader uh, of this at this point. The article continues, now these are only averages. Beef raised in the United States generally produces fewer emissions than beef raised in Brazil or Argentina. Certain cheeses can have a larger greenhouse gas impact than a lamb chop. Yeah, so there is there is some variation, but most studies agree with this general hierarchy. Plant-based foods usually have a lower impact than meat, and beef and lamb tend to be the worst offenders by a considerable margin. So consuming less red meat and dairy can typically have the biggest impact for most people in wealthy countries. Okay, there are some caveats, and if you read the article, I'll see if I can find one of those caveats, um, because one of them, I'll let you go to the full article. Um, okay, because there's what about chicken? Should humans stop eating meat altogether? Uh, this I thought this was an interesting part. Not necessarily. A number of experts have argued that a sustainable food system can and should still include plenty of animals. Uh, cows and other livestock, after all, can often be raised on pasture that would otherwise be unsuitable for growing crops, and they eat crop residues that would otherwise go to waste. They produce manure that we can use as fertilizer, and animal agriculture provides livelihoods for some 1.3 billion people worldwide. In many countries, meat, eggs, and milk offer a vital source of nutrition where there aren't good alternatives available. That said, there are also millions of people around the world in places like the United States, Europe, and Australia who currently eat, currently eat far more meat than they need to for a healthy diet, according to a recent report in the medical journal The Lancet. And if we want to feed a growing population without adding to the to global warming or putting increased pressure on the world's forests, it would make a difference if the heaviest meat eaters cut back. Yeah, so I think this article did a really nice job of you know answering some of the big questions and providing some of the caveats that have emerged from uh, the the literature and from the way that this um, 
Now, I'm sure you know some of you listening probably actually are experts in terms of uh, this. So, if you have any comments about the New York Times article or what I've said about it, uh, which has really been very minimal commentary on top of just literally reading it, uh, feel free to send me a message either through Anchor or on Twitter. Uh, however you want to do that email is fine too um i'm at dan jones ocean on twitter and uh you can also message message the podcast at climate SciPod uh, at that twitter account as well right um but you know that being said uh i think it makes sense to try to it, based on that article you know it makes some sense if you're trying to reduce your own uh carbon emissions it makes sense to eat less meat based on that um but that being said, an argument that I see on Twitter sometimes that I that I'm sensitive to that I understand is that um, when you're talking about reducing you know human emissions as a total, um, it, there's you can't talk about that without talking about uh, how do we reduce the emissions of you know the the several uh, like the handful of very large uh, organizations, very large companies uh, who are responsible for a large uh, amount of the emissions you know how, how do we tackle the the large emitters as well that you can by way of talking about this stuff maybe put too much of an emphasis on uh, individual decisions although individual decisions are totally important and and a critical part of that story anyway i i hope i've articulated some of that reasonably well i'm just a uh, i'm i'm just a mere oceanographer <laughs> like i keep saying um and what I mean by that is uh, I'm not an expert in all things climate. This topic is way, way, way too big for anybody to fully get there, uh, f- fully know all the ins and outs of every bit of it. That's why we need so many different kinds of scientists working on this. All right. So let's get into this interview with Professor Eric Wolf. Like I mentioned, he's a Royal Society Research Professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at Cambridge University. He's a Fellow of Darwin College, an Honorary Fellow at the British Antarctic Survey. He graduated as a chemist, and he studied ice cores from the Antarctic and Greenland for the past 30 years, using them to understand changing climate as well as changing levels of pollution in remote areas. I'm literally just reading from his biography because... I like to do that. I think people have at least read their biographies. Uh, so yeah, you can, uh, I don't think he's on Twitter. I didn't find him there, but you can find his profile uh, at the Department of Earth Sciences, University of Cambridge. I do need to offer a little apology. Um, the audio is pretty quiet. Uh, Eric and I, turns out we were both pretty soft-spoken. Uh, I did my best to kind of capture our conversation to get the levels right, but uh, we're, we're quiet. Uh, and we ended up, I think, both talking quiet. You know, you put two quiet people in a room together, they might even get quieter. Uh, so I compressed the audio a bit. I've tried to bring it up. I, I hope that that helps. But um, I, I think it's a really good conversation. So uh, thanks for understanding. And thanks for, uh, you know, understanding about the audio compression problem. But uh, yeah, without any further uh, rambling on from me. Let's uh, get right into this. Get right into. Let's get into this conversation with Go Professor Eric Wolf, FRS, fellow of the Royal Society. A, a nice, nice Here we go, listeners, and I get get feedback occasionally from listeners, listeners in very different places and at different stages of their of their career. And 
folks who are in science, folks who are not in science. So it's uh, yeah, it's been it's been good. Do you know how many um, Well, I, not, I, to, to do, not to do too much breast beating. No, um, I do know. I'm keeping that to myself. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's more than one, obviously. It's more, it's more than one. Yeah, it's it's certainly enough. Like you know, there's a minimum number for for me that I'm like. If it was two, I'd be worried, but it's, it's significantly more than two, so I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> it's at least five. <laughs> I'm sure it's um, more. Yeah, no, it, it, is a little, it is a little bit more than that. Um, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I hope I'm not being obnoxious with that, with kind of withholding the numbers, but I kind of just... It's fine, I'm not going to walk, I'm not going to walk out to whatever number you... <laughs> this is crap, I'm not doing this unless there's at least half a million people <laughs> It's kind of like with Twitter, because I started tweeting over the winter, summer, the Antarctic summer, yeah. for my project. It's kind of like looking at the numbers on that and think, always thinking it's not quite enough. Why haven't I got as many as that project? Yeah, but, I mean, but you, you are reaching people, unless they're all robots, which I guess that there's a small chance that it's all robots, but there, you're, there's got to be some people in the mix, right? Some real humans who are, are following and then it does give your project a little bit of a web presence so that when people you know, search it, that can be one of the things that can come yeah. up is the tweets that you put out into the world. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily about the numbers because it could be that um, these days, I think it's okay. You can find your, your small niche of people who might be really interested in following what you're doing. And even if that's 10, 20 people around the world, well, given how little effort tweeting really takes, it's probably okay, right? Take a photo and put some words on and put some... Even if there's just a small handful of people following, that's fine. You, you no longer... In my view, you don't... With, with podcasts and with project Twitter accounts, I don't know, I don't feel like you have to go for maximum numbers. It's just important about finding your, your audience, your niche set of people who want to want to follow what you're doing. So I guess that's the that's the thing is figuring out how to do that, how to find the right people, and um, I've been trying Twitter, just kind of um, using it to promote the podcast and finding individual you know people to talk to on there, and I think that's been that's been good. But um, but thanks for doing this, thanks for coming along. Um, yeah, Pleasure. yeah. So um, what have you been up to kind of this week? You know, what's what's been occupying your your time? Uh, this week, well, actually, I was examining a PhD thesis in Grenoble in France oh, yeah. on Monday. So that was Monday and Tuesday taken out. So that was, um, well, I always enjoy doing that, but it's a lot of time out because by the time you've read the thesis, written a report, which is what you have to do in the French system, gone to the actual defence, which they'd like you to do, and travelled, you've probably used up best part of a week so. yeah yeah so you're a co- co-supervisor or like external examiner no exactly or? external examiner so in the French system I don't do you know how how the French system works or? very very little okay they have it's very different from here so they have they have two stages they have um, they have two people who are rapporteurs and I was one of the rapporteurs so reporters who have to write a report on the thesis and if they say it should go ahead to, to be defended then it's going to pass essentially. Okay, right. So the the report is the crucial bit, really, and then the actual defence. You have they had six examiners, which includes the supervisors, the two rapporteurs, and two other people. Yeah. So it's, but that's a big public defence where you know the person's family is often in the audience and yeah. might hit you if you're nasty to their to their <laughs> child. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that. There's that. It sounds very responsible having that step where. 
know, we're, we're going to make sure as your you know, supervisors or uh, you know, folks, the, the adults, uh, well, these are adults who are doing the PhDs, but you know, the older scientists, the more established you know, scientists who are helping you through this process, we're going to make sure you're ready before we actually let you stand up in front of everyone and, and try to defend it. And yeah, that's really good. That's, that's kind and appropriate. I think, and, it's, and I think it's a nice system. I mean, I think British people who have these kind of private PhD vivas find it a little odd, mm. but I quite like it. It's a, it means that the, the actual defense is a really public celebration because everyone knows it's going to, nothing, nothing terrible can happen. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that that's similar in the U S like at least with the, ones that I'm systems that I'm familiar with over there and of course it can vary from department to department but you know if you there's usually a, a public defense where you do you know give a presentation about your work but then sometimes the questions can be behind closed doors you know there's a public part and then there's a, a question and answer session behind closed doors but it's um the way they explained it to me my uh, committee is they said well it's just our job to to grill you a little bit like we're we're confident you'll be okay at this stage but it, it's part of our job at this stage to put you through <laughs> put you yeah, through no, a little bit that's that's true as well but yeah so anyway that's what i was doing for the early part of the week and yesterday i was actually having meetings with all my phd students who i hadn't seen in the earlier part of the week oh yeah among other things lots of supervising up. yeah yesterday was lots of supervising I still feel as though I'm catching up for my field season in Antarctica, in fact. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Because I, yes. I thought we could talk about some of the projects that have been going on. We, we might as well start with, you know, the one that's... That's, that's probably the big recently. one in my mind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, that's a project called Waxway, mm -hmm. which I can never remember exactly what it stands for, even though I made up the acronym, but some, <laughs> somewhere in there is climate and West Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, um, so the project, well, what we were doing last field season in Antarctica was drilling an ice core to the bottom of the ice sheet at the place we were drilling. So that was 650 metres. And the idea is to work, is to understand whether the West Antarctic ice sheet survived the last interglacial. So the last interglacial is a time about 120,000 years ago uh, when Antarctica and the Arctic were slightly warmer than today because of not anything to do with greenhouse gases but because of changes in Earth's orbit around the sun mm -hmm. so they were both slightly warmer than today about at the kind of levels we're expecting at the end of the century if you know in mid-range scenarios where we don't do too much about carbon dioxide right. um, and many people think well see we know that we know from coral data that sea level was higher then by about six to nine meters is the best bet mm. which means that either a lot of Greenland or a lot of West Antarctica, or, or a small part of East Antarctica, must have melted. Hmm. And the question is which, and it's actually very hard to work that out, but rather important to understand which ice sheet we should worry about in the future. Because it tells you something about their, their stability, their yeah. kind of robustness under different temperature regimes. It tells you, I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a kind of blunt instrument, but it tells you, you know, if you go to this temperature that we're expecting in 2100 and, and stay there for a long time, then... Did, did the ice sheet survive? It's a it's a fairly yeah. blank yes or no answer. Well, it's, okay, we hope to get a little bit more than that. If we're lucky, then what we'll get out of it. So I should say where we're drilling is yeah. somewhere where even the most robust, even the most ruthless ice sheet models, that's a, a strange phrase to use, but the ones that are most aggressive, the ones that get rid of West Antarctic most easily, still leave ice on this ice rise, okay. which is kind of next to the West Antarctic ice sheet. So we should get last interglacial ice in the bottom of the ice. It'll be quite compressed in the bottom few tens of metres at, at most. But we should be able to put a date on when 
the ice shelf that borders this ice rise and the ice sheet behind it when they retreated and when they re-advanced, okay, which so would be quite useful for validating climate model. So if I understand right, the deepest ice, that will be the oldest ice. You said that some of that should come from before yes. the last interglacial. So we should. So the, the ice, what happens is that about, um, well, we don't actually know quite how much snow falls each year, but it's, it's, we think it's around 20 centimetres ice equivalent. So in other words, if you melted the snow and turned it back into ice, solid ice, it would be about 20 centimetres a year. So that means by 200 metres, you're only at about um, 1,000 years or something. But the ice really thins with depth hmm. uh, a Cause lot. Because it's, it's compacted. Because uh, it's Well, first it's compacted and, and densified in solid ice, and then it flows, so it's flowing towards it. This is a... You have to imagine ice draping a dome, and this is a really nice-shaped circular mm. dome, this particular place, Skytrain Ice Rise. And the ice flows out towards the edges, and as it's flowing, that means that each individual layer is getting thinner and thinner until, actually, in theory, they're infinitely thin at the bottom, <laughs> assuming okay. there's no melting at the bottom, and, and, we, and there isn't. We know yeah. that. Because um, the ice moves out in a horizontal direction so, too, yeah, which thins, thins the layers. Exactly. Okay, yeah. yeah. So... So our estimate is that we should reach the last glacial maximum when it was much colder than today, about 20,000 years ago, we should reach that somewhere around 500 metres. And then the last interglacial somewhere around 600 metres. And the bottom, as I say, could in theory be infinitely old. In, in practice, the, the bottom few metres will be a bit of a mess because they'll have, they will have suffered some deformation because of being near the bottom and, and the undulations and the bedrock will have made them sort of Flow, flow and fold. Oh, way. right. So not just the pressure from above, but also geologic timescale changes. And yeah, you'll just get. I mean, in theory, if it was, if we were right on the top of the very top of the dome, and we'd always been on, the, and this place had always been on the very top of the dome, then the ice should always be flowing outwards from this point, and there would be none of this mess at the bottom. It would just be perfect right to the bottom. Hmm. But in practice, the dome is bound to have moved yeah. over geologic time, so the ice at some points has flowed towards our site rather than away from it and that would have caused little little folds and we know that happens because when we got near the bottom we found pebbles a few metres above the bottom mm. a couple of metres above the bottom which means you know, somewhere ice from the bottom has managed to make it a couple of metres up right. okay so your objective when you went there was to get this long core how did it go? so, <laughs> so it was good because we yeah. got it that's the crucial thing okay. it's, it's nerve wracking um, yeah I bet so. Uh, so we ended up with six of us in the field at the end of the season and we were drilling in two shifts well four shifts actually of four hours each but 16 hours a day but two teams of shifts three people um and you could drill about on the good days we drilled about 20 meters in a day um it's just it's it's such a an on-off thing either you get to the bottom and you've succeeded or you don't get to the bottom and you probably haven't got the old ice you were looking for unless you've got very near to the bottom mm, right and so you failed so actually reaching the bottom and seeing that first pebble was really exciting <laughs> and it, it was and it was a, a difficult field site it's okay probably difficult for me because i hadn't been in the field for uh, although i'd been to antarctica six times before i hadn't been into the field well not into a field site with tents for 20 years and not to antarctica for more than 15 years oh, right. so yeah. For a, for a guy who's getting starting to get on a bit, <laughs> it was quite a thing to go back again and, and think could I could I actually 
you know, had I got too soft, <laughs> could I handle it? And, so your, your body was giving you some feedback that like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, it was, I was just worrying about it, but it turned out to be okay. You're okay. Even yeah. though the yeah. field site was quite a tough place because for the first few weeks we were there, it was, it was very windy mm. and what, what being windy in Antarctica means is that there's a lot of snow blowing around. Yeah. And the blowing snow it has two two big effects. So firstly, every everywhere you put something on the snow surface, like a tent, behind it you get behind it on the on the, the windward side you get a scoop and on mm. the front of it it dumps the snow into a pile of snow on the front, which right. can block the door, for example, of the tent if you've got the door in the wrong place. Right. It means you've got these holes and these piles of snow in different places and you've also got no visibility if the snow's blowing so it's right. like those people who go skiing will know what it's like when it's cloudy or if there's snow blowing around and you just can't see the surface of the snow at all you can't work out where the, which direction the slope's going in how long can uh, like over what time period do you need to worry about like how quickly can the door potentially get shut off uh, quite quickly actually yeah. there was there was one day when we had we had a fairly big tent I mean, when I say a fairly big tent we had a what we call a, a leisure tent where we where we're doing our cooking and, and our socializing <laughs> which was a tent that's about um actually i can't remember how long it is it's probably about 10 meters long and uh, three or four meters across a sort of semicircular i'm just i'm, I'm making a semicircle <laughs> to you but obviously obviously the listeners can't hear that yeah, yeah. Uh, shape um and that has a door, which is literally a door that you that you open and shut. And there there was one day when when three of us were drilling in the drill tent, and we got this radio call over the VHF radio from the people in the leisure tent saying, "Could you come and dig us out, please? We've been in here for an hour and a half, and the snow's built up, and we can't open the door." Hour and a half. Oh my gosh. So, um, and I guess I mean that can happen. I guess you, you said you always have people on shift, so there's always someone awake. So it's not like every, everybody can't go to sleep and then necessarily wake up. No, I mean we, then, you, know. you know, we would have got you would have got out. I mean, their canvas tent, you would find a way to help somehow. Mm. There's, there's a zip at the other end actually that you can get out of that you don't want to use. Yeah, so. uh, yeah. It's good to know somebody thought of that. I'm sure that somebody thought of like yeah. when you, they're designing these tents, like. We're going to need more than one. I mean, the trick is that you're supposed to put the tent such that the scoop is at the door end. But in this case, it had been not done initially, and then it was too much trouble to move it. So. Oh, right, yeah. So how did, how did you get all the supplies down there? Um, so everything that came in this year came in from a station at Rothera, which is uh, six hours of Twin Otter flying away, three, three two-hour hops. Okay, yeah, so um, you're on the, the smallish Twin Otter planes. On the small Twin Otter, so that was how we got there and how all the the equipment that had to be prepared over the last summer in Cambridge, that all went in through the Twin Otter, but the the really big gear, which included the drill itself, had gone in with the Traverse the year before, so British Antarctic Survey has this uh, these tractor trains, essentially, so um, snow... Uh, not snow-moving vehicle. Well, they are tractors, essentially, that, mm-hmm. that pull big sledges that can carry a lot of gear around, and they've been taking that around Antarctica in recent years to deliver supplies from a ship. So, so the ship can dot somewhere. Mm-hmm. On this case, it was on the edge of the Ronnie Ice Shelf, unload cargo, and then the Traverse can pick it up and take... I'm not actually sure what the capacity is. I think it's around 100 tonnes per Traverse vehicle. Mm. Of equipment around and so they they took all this equipment and left it at the site for us 
Okay, yeah, I, I'm still amazed by that. You mentioned that you know ships can dock on the edge of the ice shelf, and you know I, I know it's a kind of a routine thing for bass to do you know, as an organization, but every time I think about that, it seems really <laughs> impressive. Like, well, I suppose you know, um, it does. I mean, obviously, you have to find something that's low enough that the ship can actually unload mm-hmm. onto it, because ice shelf, the cliffs at the edge of ice shelves can be tens of meters high, and that yeah. would be too much for the cranes on most ships. Yeah. So you have to find somewhere where it's low, and I, I guess they did. I guess they did find somewhere. Mm. Uh, this this year they actually docked on a, another ice shelf on the uh, what I mean, the Amundsen Sea coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. So that's the west side of the Antarctic Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, and there they had aircraft flights to find them a good place where they yeah. could actually unload. Yeah. Stuff. I suppose what you need to dock a ship, you need a, a flat horizontal side. That's what you have in a dock in. <laughs> In a, in a port, you have a flat horizontal side, and ice cliffs are actually like that. So in a way, they're, <laughs> they're sort of ideal. If they if they sloped, yeah. then, then it would be awkward. Right. <laughs> so you use the small you use planes to figure out like where is a good potential docking site for the ship. They certainly did know, this yeah. year. I don't know yeah. whether they did last year when they were unloading. Because that could change from year to year, and, and does change from year to year. So yeah, you can't necessarily use the same. That's that's pretty. Yeah, it's amazing to think about. And so all of this equipment. It's loaded up onto the traverse, like you mentioned, and taken to the site. So, uh, and then, it was, and then it, it's left there. For it was a while. left there, and they have to. They had to build what they call berms, which is like small hills that they put it on, so that the snowdrift doesn't just bury it. Because otherwise, in the same way as with mm-hmm. the tents I was talking about, if you put a you know a barrel of fuel on the surface, the next year it just wouldn't be there. It would yeah. be way down, yeah. even even if it hasn't snowed that much. Just the blowing snow would have covered it up. So they put it on on these small hills, and that worked well. Yeah, and everything was clear when the first people arrived at the camp. Yeah, so the, I was just imagining yeah, losing a barrel or something, and then well, um, some imagining someone else finding it accidentally. But I guess we know where these things are. We know where we well, put them, and they we've. You Everyone put, puts a big flag. Yeah, where, you put a big flag in the snow. I'm sure there have been things lost in the past. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we found everything we were looking for. Yeah. Oh, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe a future scientist will find something accidentally. We did have to do a lot of digging. for what, One of the things that had been delivered last year was the empty boxes to put the ice cores in. So they're uh, long cardboard boxes about a metre long and um, 40 centimetres square. That have polystyrene, uh, that have foam, insulating foam inside them yeah. to keep the ice cold. So, uh, so they had to be buried because they would blow away yeah. with, with no ice in them. So they they were buried under under a kind of loose wooden frame, mm. and that was buried. So that was one of the first tools we had to do when we got there was dig it all out. Dig it out. <laughs> so you show up after a long uh, longish flight, and you get out, and you have to start preparing the camp right away because you're going to need somewhere to to stay you know that pretty quickly so I was lucky I wasn't one of the first people into the camp so the first people who went into the camp were um, the, the field guide that, who's the, the kind of survival expert mm. that Bass gives every field party because it's that's in, important intrinsically assumed that scientists left to their own devices will probably manage <laughs> to find a way of killing themselves yeah there's, there's probably not a huge overlap between folks who can survive in the wilderness 100% and uh, scientists. There is some overlap, but yeah, it's not... That's kind of the assumption. So the field guide and and my colleague Robert Mulvaney, who's done 25 field seasons, so he would be able to survive. (laughs) They they went in first, and so they set up the initial camp, the pyramid tent that 
they slept in. Mm-hmm. And then when the next two people in, they started building up the the leisure tent I talked about, where where we had the cooking area, and the other pyramid tent. So actually, by the time I arrived, I already had a tent to sleep in. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> so, that's which was nice. So, um, still had to do a lot of digging, but yeah. But you're giving me this picture of you know this is a project that I mean the planning must have been you know, going on for years because you have to plan so far in advance where are you going to drill what are you going to need when you get there um, how are we going to get there so I, I mean you must get really invested in it not just because of the science but also because so much effort has gone into um, getting the ice core and so uh, you're giving me a sense of you know, just why it's so exciting to get for example the pebbles that you mentioned at the bottom of the ice core because it's a sign that Okay, the thing that we've all been, you know, working towards and thinking about for years is looks like it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Looks like it's it actually has happened, and we've been successful in getting this. Well, this stage, stage successful on stage one of it. Yes. No, yeah, I mean, this, yeah. so this project is funded by the European Research Council, right. which uh, so it's it's to me personally as a ERC advanced grant. So European Research Council is this thing that all all of us scientists think is a rather wonderful thing because it hands out fairly large sums of money and allows scientists to pursue a, a big project that they're really invested in so exactly what you're saying yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's covering the whole project including the logistic costs um, of course slightly worried about what's going to happen in the next few days about European funding because yeah. if it was all sorted that if we left in an orderly fashion, we everything would still be fine. But if we oh. leave in a disorderly fashion, it's not quite so obvious. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's really stressful. Yeah. But, uh, I... uh, in theory, the government, the UK government, has guaranteed that anything that we won already, they will cover. But uh, it's probably not right at the top of the government's mind at the moment. No, not not at the moment. No, that's that's been. This is my least favorite game of chicken I've ever watched. This is like <laughs> just. Uh, oh, it's scary. I don't know. Yeah, uh, well, it's yeah, yeah. It's probably not wise for me to say too much. But it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very silly indeed. It's it's um, and it's not even really a game of chicken because no, I don't think most of the people playing actually know which road it is they're trying to cross. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a mess. It's okay, yeah, we don't have to go down that, that road necessarily. It's easy, we could talk all day about that. Um, anyway, no, th- this anyway, project is, yes. is generously funded by <laughs> European funding, which um, has allowed me to... So we had to start... So we, you were talking about preparation. So we had to actually start it in August 2017 so that we could buy the equipment that went to the Antarctic in right. November 2017 on project money, even though we weren't really starting the project for another year. Yeah. So I didn't hire my postdocs, my postdoctoral researchers. I didn't hire them until a year after the project officially started, right. yeah. and then they went to the Antarctic with me. And that meant you were preparing the proposal a couple of years before that, yeah. I, would, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. 20, 2015, 2016, around yeah, that time. It's labelled in my files. It's labelled 2016, so it was the 2016 application, which meant I would have started preparing it in 2015. Yeah. yeah. I've heard the application process is pretty intense for that. I mean, as one might expect, since they're handing out so much money. But it's um, it's intense because so much is riding on it. So it's psychologically it's intense. Mm. You know, either you get, in my case, three million euros or nothing. Oh right, which is it's a big difference. High high stakes. Um, So. I don't know, it's not that bad. You have to write... I mean, there's a form to fill in, but that's reasonably straightforward. I mean, it's information about you and your organisation. 
you have to provide a CV, a curriculum vitae, but that's mm. normal. I mean, you, we all scientists have that in their drawer already. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have to write a 15-page version of what you're going to do and a five-page version of what you're going to do. So at the first stage, the reviewers only look at the five-page version, and then if you pass that, you move to the second stage where they right. look at the longer one. You have to submit both at the same time. You have time. to submit both at the same time. And um, But having said that, that's essentially all you have to submit, whereas for the research councils in the UK, there are all kinds of add-ons that you have to do and extra declarations you have to sign that I always found quite complicated so yeah for example like if you're going to do uh, work on one of the high performance computing machines they really they want you to do some kind of scaling analysis which you may or may not really be able to do in a meaningful way depending on what code you actually have running and but they want to see that you've put some thought into you know okay the computational resource that you'll need um yeah there are other lots of other forms too yeah, I, I felt um, there were a lot of and also with the, the with the UK Research Council forms, you have to write about all your project partners and so on. Whereas for the European Union, essentially, because because the ERC funding in particular is is funding to a principal investigator, you can be you, you do talk about the other people who are going to be working on the project, but you don't have to major on it. You have to write a big CV for them, just a, a right. paragraph about why they're particularly suitable. So. Well, not to put you on the spot too much, but do you have any advice for folks who might be writing fellowships or proposals like um, myself with all my post-it notes? That's a good question. I'm actually, I've actually just agreed to um, take part in a, a session that BAS is organising, that your research office is organising about how to win different grants. Mm. I'm going to talk about the advance. I don't know because I'm, I'm obviously I'm a sample of one. Right. Yeah. Where I. On the other hand, I, I was unsuccessful three times before in that same grant. And that's good to know, so honestly. I, <laughs> yeah. So I kind of yeah. have I have four experiences. I, I know three three ways not to win the money and one way to win it. The big difference for that particular scheme, but it, but it is a particular scheme where they're really looking for big projects that are going to transform the field, I think is that it does have to be one big idea. In, in the previous versions that I wrote... I tended to write about a whole bunch of things that were all loosely connected to the same theme and that right, I could put okay. in a nice, you know, in a in a diagram I could make look very connected in, into one big project. Hmm. But nonetheless, you could easily see how you could lock bits off them. Right, like it's modular, you can and, take bits and, in. And, and that it could have been four NERC grants. Hmm. Um, and I suspect that's what... Although I have seen ones like that funded by the European Research Council, I suspect that's not their preferred thing whereas this time I would say I'm going to do this one project at the end of it there'll be this ice core that you can actually see with a, mm. you know I can paint a European flag on it if you want <laughs> <laughs> and, and there'll be one result which is which you know put very simplistically obviously it's, I took 15 pages to say it less simplistically but put very simplistically is just did the West Antarctic ice sheet survive a, a 4 degree temperature rise right yeah and that's I think that's at least the kind of thing they want. They don't. They don't want a question like, you know, "What happened to Antarctic ice over the last hundred thousand years?" They want something a bit more specific and focused. So. Focused and kind of. Uh, well, it sounds like something that has a little bit more of a. Uh, like you said, it is more complicated than yes/no or binary, but it has that stark, clear. You know, I will either get this result or that result. 
we know scientifically it'll be a little bit murkier than that, but that there's the you can identify clear end members <laughs> yeah. in your analysis, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a I should say it's a little bit more complicated as well in the sense that it's not just one ice core. We are actually drilling another, not a core. We're drilling another hole next year in another place where we might also get very old ice. Uh, I suspect we won't, and that's another aspect. The European Research Council says it likes things that are a little risky. And the second hole is somewhere where we might get old ice, and if we did, it would really be great because it's quite near to the uh, the um, ice streams on the Amundsen Sea coast that people are so worried about at the moment and where NOAA is actually putting a big investment in at the moment. But the likelihood is that we won't find old ice because I suspect what happened is that in the last ice age, the last glacial maximum, that the ice grew and actually overrode this place and, and removed all the oldest ice. Mm. So it's risky in that sense, which is why we're doing it as what we call a rapid access drilling, where we drill a hole and collect the shavings from drilling the hole, but we don't actually make collect a core, which is a, a cylindrical block of ice. Right, yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like, I mean, the kind of um, takeaway that I got from your the grant uh, advice was you have to get to know your specific call really well. You know, there's an element of that, of knowing what they'll be looking for. And sometimes you can get a sense of that from the guidance document, but I feel like often you probably get a better sense of that from just talking to as many people as you can who have interacted with that particular funding body and who know it well. So there's a real important element of just just being in the community and talking to people and getting a feeling for you know how the different funding sources actually work and what they look for. Because um, no, uh, there's, there's obviously no kind of general answer yeah, for all different all different funding streams. No, I mean, um, I think I suppose the other thing, at least in my case, I could say is that is it's worth persevering because, you know, I failed three times, but each time I was reasonably close and that I got past the first stage, hmm. and yeah, I knew that I from the scores I knew that I was reasonably close. So in that case, you're thinking to yourself, what is it I could do to make it a little bit better? Obviously, if you don't even pass the first stage, you're you're probably not very close, and you. You need to think: Am I am I ready for this yet? Mm, right. Or have I just not got the because because they're looking at at least in this scheme they're looking at the researcher as well as the research. So if you don't even get past the first stage, it may be telling you that you're not quite at the career stage where you where you stand a chance on this particular scheme. Yeah, I know the ERC, the European Research Council. I think they uh, they they do um, look at the individual researcher and they look at your. You, when you mentioned the career stage, it just uh, reminded me of some of the advice I've gotten about those in particular. Is that you need to have a pretty deep list of big papers, and um, you know it, it, it's got to be pretty impressive from that researcher kind of level it's, as well. Yeah, I think it's fifty percent of the marks go on the researcher, and mm. uh, so yeah. I mean, I don't know how impressive it is. They have these different career stages with the ERC. They have the starter, the consolidator, and the advanced. And so obviously for the starter, they're not expecting a huge list. They're, right. they're just expecting you to be good for your career stage. And yeah, yeah, that, that's fair. It's um, it can be it can be intimidating, but uh, that whole process, you know, because you have to put the whole grant application process, because you have to put so much work into it and so much effort. But um, like you said, hopefully at least you get useful feedback out of the process. You know, even if you're not successful and. Um, you know, they're, they're, if you have the time and are able to, and if you are confident in your idea, then you can you can keep trying. Uh, I guess 
some of it is a lottery, right? Because you have different reviewers, and there's some element of, of a little bit of randomness uh, because yeah. you might have different review panels and uh, different folks who make the kind of final call about whether things are funded or not. So it's uh, it's probably hard to get a real sense of how much variability there is in that score just based on the different panels because I imagine it it can be can be big. Um, I, w- I would assume so. I mean, I haven't I haven't sat on that particular panel, obviously, but it's. My feeling is people always complain about when they don't get grants that it's you know their their proposal was fantastic mm-hmm. and so on. I I sometimes think people are a little unrealistic about what's going to get mm. funded. So um, I suspect that if you don't even come close, mm-hmm. then it probably means your proposal really wasn't actually going to get funded right. however many times it was sent to different reviewers. Right, right. It would be I think you'd be unlucky to get such biased or or random reviews that a really good proposal, one that was really going to be in that top ten percent that gets funded, that didn't even pass the first test and get into the top forty yeah. percent or something. Yeah. So I don't worry too much about that first stage normally. But obviously whether you're in the first ten percent or the first eleven percent is going to be pretty random. Yeah. <laughs> I heard this interesting proposal. I don't have a strong opinion about it, but uh, this interesting alternative way to do uh, grant funding is to you know, have a review panel identify the top, I don't know, 10, 15% of the proposals and then have uh, a random system <laughs> in terms of which proposals in that top 10% are actually going to get funded. Uh, and I guess the philosophy behind that is you know, do we really have the granular ability to select the best proposal out of the top 10% or? Or are we just kind of going with our gut on what yeah, we think, I think is good? I, well, from, okay, I have sat on quite a lot of grant panels, I suppose. My feeling is that when the success rate is around 20 30%, you, you pretty much are funding everything that's really good, mm. and even a few that maybe you think, well, it's, you know, it's worth a punt, but it's not that great. Yeah. When it's down to 10%, I think it's becoming just a bit potluck. That's mm. the problem. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, can I switch gears and ask you some, some science questions? I thought it would be good to talk about um, the basic science of how you learn stuff from ice cores. Um, so, you know, for example, you go out, you get these ice cores, um, and a, you know, there's a list of potential things that you can learn from these things. How do you learn about past temperatures from these from the ice core data? Okay, so, so the, the first crucial thing about an ice core is that the snow, it's a sediment, essentially. The snow, like with any sediment, a uh, marine sediment or a or a tree ring or whatever it is something is laid down in a time sequential order in this case it's snow mm-hmm. so that by drilling into it you're going back in time hopefully monotonically back in time yeah so that's that's the first thing um and you've got to put an age on it that's actually quite a big part of the deal which we could talk about later maybe how you date the ice um so then you're measuring various bits of chemi- various aspects of chemistry in the ice to understand how climate has changed. So for the temperature, the main thing that we use is the water isotopes. So that's mm. the water the water that makes up the snow itself, the ice itself. So water comes in a number of... I hate using this term because I'm never quite sure whether it actually helps, but flavours, <laughs> meaning different isotopic content. So yeah. that means there's most water has two hydrogen atoms with an atomic 
mass of one and one oxygen atom with an atomic mass of 16. Mm -hmm. But a small proportion has an atomic mass of 18 in the oxygen and a small proportion has an atomic mass of two in the hydrogen. A couple extra neutrons, a couple fewer neutrons. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And those different sorts of water, it's it's one in 2,000 for the deuterium, for the one with hydrogen, with the the higher hydrogen, I think. But that proportion, um, so the... Go back. The heavier ones have a lower vapor pressure, so that means it's harder to evaporate them and easier to condense them into snow. So that means that every time you change phase from liquid or solid to vapor and back to solid or liquid, you get a fractionation where one is more easily evaporated than the other yeah. and one is more easily condensed than the other. Yeah. So the, the result of that is that the condensed phase, so that's the snow, so you evaporate water from the ocean, mm-hmm. You put it into the atmosphere as water vapour, it turns into a cloud and falls out somewhere colder as snow. Is essentially how how the water cycle, the hydrologic yeah. cycle works. If you were a single if you, if you were a single air mass, of course, it's way more complicated than that. <laughs> so if you if you imagine maybe I should say that in a different way. Okay, let's start again. You evaporate water from imagine you're a single air mass, so you evaporate water in the subtropics. You evaporate a bit less as a proportion of the heavy isotope than of the light one. So yeah. there's a bit less of it in the cloud. That means it's depleted. It's got a what we call a negative oxygen isotope ratio. Mm-hmm. It then travels towards the polar regions, and that's towards somewhere that's colder. And as a result, some rain falls or some snow falls, and that rain has a little bit more of the heavy isotope in right. it. So the air mass that remains in the atmosphere is even more is a little more depleted again, a little more negative oxygen isotopes, and that keeps happening as you move towards the pole. Mm-hmm. The colder it gets, the more rain falls out, the more snow falls out, and the more negative this number gets, this oxygen isotope ratio. But that's how it works with a single air mass, and it works out when you actually analyse that analytically, which is the process of radio fractionation, that the water isotope ratio that you measure at the site where the snow falls in say Antarctica or Greenland is essentially dependent only on the temperature Mm. difference between the place where the snow forms and the place where it was evaporated from the ocean. Now of course when you have lots of air masses travelling in all different directions it becomes way more complicated than that. (laughs) There are some other effects Uh, there are some problems because in some places it snows more in winter than in summer so what we see is is a biased temperature mm-hmm. but but essentially by measuring this water isotope ratio in the ice we can say what the temperature was going back in antarctica as far so far as eight hundred thousand years yeah so there's a reasonably tight coupling between the water cycle and how it separates heavy isotopes from light isotopes and the temperature uh, the, the overall kind of temperature there is there certainly is in the temperate and polar regions in the tropics it's slightly different it turns out when you look at it in models that what mainly controls the ratio is what's called the amount effect where when you get very heavy rain it becomes very depleted and then what falls afterwards is is less is more depleted that's right so it becomes depleted during the the rain out and so at the end of a a rainfall you get more uh, of the depleted isotope actually I'm not quite sure how it works in the tropics it might yeah. be the other way around but it's 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 essentially based on the amount of 
so when you get a heavy monsoon, you get a different ratio from when you get a light monsoon. I now can't remember which way around it is. I have to <laughs> oh, that's okay. Do folks, use, do folks use that for, I guess, paleoclimate reconstruction they do. in the Pe- tropics? People yeah. who look at speleothems, so that's cave deposits, stalactites yeah. and stalactites, mm-hmm. where they're looking at uh, the, the oxygen isotope ratio in carbonates that, that build up in these cave deposits. There they use that to interpret whether you had a heavy monsoon or a light monsoon in the past. Mm. So, but... In the Antarctic, we, we treat it as a temperature profile. I mean, it's not, it's not a good temperature, it's not a perfect temperature proxy. The ratio between this thing we measure and the temperature can vary depending on different factors. But essentially, if you see the, if you see the number go down, it means it was colder, and if you see it go up, it means it was warmer. Right, yeah. And so you can try to relate uh, those changes to changes in atmospheric composition, which you can, in some cases, not quite directly measure, the composition of the atmosphere, well, right? Pretty, di- pretty directly. So there, are, directly, there yeah. are two other ways that we get information from ice cores. So one is with things that are actually deposited at the same time as the snow. So, for example, when you get a big volcanic eruption, yeah. you get a lot of sulphur dioxide goes into the stratosphere, into the, the middle atmosphere, mm-hmm. and then falls out all over the Earth as sulphate, sulfuric acid, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not terribly acidic, but it's mm-hmm. essentially it's sulfuric acid dropping out all over the Earth, including the polar region. So when you measure sulphate... In an ice core, what you see is a fairly flat background of flat con- the same concentration over time, mm. and then suddenly you get a spike, and that's this volcanic eruption fallout right. on the snow, and then that tails off over the next two or three years as the atmosphere gets completed, and then maybe a hundred years later you get another one of these big spikes. So, mm. like Tambora, the famous Indonesian eruption in 1815, we can see in every ice core. In fact, we use it to help us date the ice core when we. When we find that spike, we say, "Oh, I now know that was 1815." Mm. Um, so that's that's the second way that we that we get yeah. information. And then the third way is something that's really unique to ice cores and really special in paleoclimate, which is the bubbles that form in the ice. So as the snow, whereas in Cambridge, to get from snow to ice, what happens is it snows maybe overnight, then the next day it gets warm, it's, it's melts, cold. and then it freezes the next day, and you get solid ice. Yeah. In Antarctica, that never happens. In most of Antarctica, the only way you get solid ice is by squashing the snowflakes together. Uh, they and they sort of—it's partly a pressure thing and partly the fact that vapor is moving around in this porous snow pack that you have below the surface, which is closing the necks between the different snow crystals. And eventually, somewhere around, depending where you are, between seventy and one hundred meters, it's no longer porous. Um, well, it starts off as snow, it becomes a kind of network of what we call fern, which is kind of not quite ice, <laughs> proto-ice. <laughs> and then eventually it closes off so that the air can't flow at all, and it closes off ice, completely closed ice, which contains bubbles, and you see them as certain, really as circular bubbles a few tenths of a millimetre across yeah. that you can see in a cross-section. And those bubbles contain a sample of the atmosphere, which is really really is a sample of the atmosphere. If you could crack open those bubbles, which essentially is what we do, you could put them into an analysis instrument just as though you stuck a tube out of the window of this office and measured the carbon dioxide concentration or the argon concentration of the atmosphere. That's really, yeah, that's really good. I just, you know, you're literally capturing a bit of air from, you know, that region and that time, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even, you know, several hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, and then so you, when, when you, uh, I've been down to the ice core lab here, and I, I like how, um, so in the setup, I've seen how the ice core is kind of vertical, 
right? It's put, I'm talking about the, you know, you, you put the ice core into this vertical thing where the very, very bottom of it is, is heated. So you're kind of melting the very bottom of the ice core, right? And then you're sending the uh, gases and other things that you're getting out of that melting process through a lot of different channels uh, where it's, you're measuring several things kind of simultaneously and you have, um, you know, you have, um, you know, many different measurements going on at once. Do you do much of the lab work? Do you do? Are, are you in the lab at all, or have uh, you gotten to play around with that a bit? <laughs> uh, I haven't. I haven't spent a lot of time in the lab in the last few years. I have to admit, but we will be. I mean, the the ice that we collected last Antarctic summer, last winter here, uh, will be will be back in the UK in April, right. and then we'll be cutting it into the sections. One of which goes on this melter device you were talking about. We'll be cutting it up in May and June and analysing it in. You know, after that in the summer and autumn yeah. um, I personally probably if I'm honest won't spend too much time in the lab These my postdoctoral researchers and PhD students will be yeah yeah. Um, I will spend some time cutting up because I feel I have to do that as well <laughs> right because you have to wait on the ice to get back on the ship it's stored in a freezer on the it's ship stored in a freezer to... hopefully at minus 20 degrees on the ship yeah and then it has to go through the tropics uh, but obviously in the freezer but you just you know fingers crossed that the, the... Sh- the ship's engineers are supposed to keep a careful check on it I mean it has dual yeah. the, the freezer has dual systems on it so hopefully it's Okay. It's got redundancy. It's like got if, redundancy. One, if one bit fails, the other bit should kick in. And uh, and if if it completely fails, they should be able to move it to another freezer, to a food freezer or something. Right. Hopefully. And then uh, hurry up. Yeah, I'm, I get nervous, but I mean because they're in insulated boxes, you you would have a a few hours, maybe even a day's grace before anything really disastrous happened. But mm. it's. Um, probably best not to think about it too much like if you haven't heard any news then it's all you can just assume it's fine right well, right now the ship's <laughs> probably uh it probably may well be in the tropics by now actually i'm not quite sure where it is are they coming back on the shackleton yeah or the yeah okay yeah i'm not sure where that is i know um andrew myers who works here is down in the southern ocean at the moment on one of the andrex cruises is the is the acronym but i also forget what <laughs> what that stands for but yeah he's taking some measurements in the in the southern ocean at the moment so one of the best ships is down there I'm pretty um, sure it's coming back because the Shackleton's the one that's being handed back because it's leased and it's being handed back in May or June, I think. Right. So. Yeah, it's a, this transition time where we're going to be moving from operating two ships to, to one ship. And the one ship is nice and new and shiny and, and looks really exciting. Um, it's interesting, there are still some challenges there, right? When you're used to having two ships, you can kind of use one to move stuff around and the other to do science and move people around. So now... There's the logistical challenge of all of that now needs to happen on, on one ship, all the moving people around and moving stuff around and doing the science. Um, I mean, it, it can be done. It just probably means long, more time on the ship. Uh, I, I think the UK has traditionally pretty short cruises as cruises go uh, from, you know, talking to folks who sail from Australia and other other places. Those, those cruises can sometimes be, you know, a good few months long, whereas we tend to just spend a few weeks on it because of those, those shorter time periods. Um, oh yeah, we were going to talk about dating ice. Do you want to talk about like how how do we find the so, so in in an ideal situation, which means somewhere where there's quite a lot of snowfall each year, you can count annual layers in the snow, and you do that not by not by just looking at them normally, but by measuring chemistry, which varies between summer and winter. So as an example, uh, sea salt in the snows that come from the ocean tends to vary between summer and winter depending on how much sea ice you've got. In fact. 
Hmm. Um, and uh, there's another chemical, hydrogen peroxide, which is produced photochemically, so that means by sunlight. And so that obviously peaks in the summer when there's sunlight all the time in some parts of Antarctica yeah. Yeah. And, and goes to very low values in the winter. So so by measuring that along the core, you can you can count one year, two years, three years, and so on. So that's the ideal situation. Unfortunately, in the places where you can get a lot of years, where there's a very low snowfall rate, you can't do that because uh, it's just too smeared out. So there we use a combination of things. Essentially, you start off with a bit of physics. You say, I know how much snow falls today each year. So I know how thick a layer is at, at the surface. And I can make an estimate of how much snow fell in the past, actually by looking in the ice at estimating the, the past temperature and, and, and <coughs> taking a guess at how the snowfall rate changed with temperature. And I also know from ice flow modelling how each layer how each layer thins as it gets deeper in the ice and is under pressure. So you can make a first estimate of the age by using by by using that thinking to estimate how thick each layer will be with depth, which then obviously the age the age at a particular depth is actually asking the question how many layers are above me. Mm and therefore how thick is each layer above me. So that's the first thing you do, and then you look for things where you already know the age in order to pin that down. So a volcanic eruption like Tambora 1815, if I found that somewhere between 1800 and 1830, I would say, okay, that is now actually 1815. Um, Christine Lane taught me this phrase, uh, this word, uh, tephra. So tephra... All all sorts of things that are ejected from volcanoes. So tephra is a bit more tricky. You can find tephra layers in our ice cores, but tephra is actually the solid the solid ash particles that come out mm. of the the volcano as opposed to the sulfur the sulfate that forms from sulfur dioxide mm. gas and it doesn't tend to travel as far so when you get a volcanic eruption the tephra will go with the wind mm. downwind and will coat uh, areas downwind for maybe a few days a few weeks after the eruption the sulfur dioxide will go into the stratosphere and will spread everywhere and will land everywhere so the tephra, you have to be lucky. In Antarctica, you're not often downwind of the eruption, so you right. don't actually find many tephras in the Antarctic the, the gas and... Uh, yeah, in, in Greenland, they find a lot more, which is um, where a lot more work's been done on the tephra because you're often downwind of Iceland, where there are a lot of eruptions. You find a lot of tephras, these, where you actually see a visible layer in the ice. You pick the ice up and hold it to the light, you see a dark ash layer in, mm. in it. Okay, um, so you have these layers of volcanic eruptions. So that's one way of... of Getting a date. Um, the if I if I jump straight to talking about the very oldest ice core we have, which is from a place called Dome C in central East Antarctica, which is eight hundred thousand years old. Old. So near the bottom of that, your your very switched on listeners will think eight hundred thousand years. That's just below the last time the Earth's magnetic field reversed. <laughs> which is, is correct. <laughs> so now they'll all be writing to you to say, yes, I knew that. So <laughs> 780,000 years from is, is a radiometric date from geological material of when the Earth's magnetic field last completely flipped from north to south. It's mm. called the Brunus Matayama reversal. And what happens when the magnetic field reverses is that it's very weak for a while. And when the magnetic field's weak, you get more cosmic rays coming to the Earth's atmosphere. Right. And when you get cosmic rays, you produce a chemical called beryllium-10. So it's an isotope of beryllium. Mm. Uh, which is produced from the gases in the in the air, and so when we had drilled this deep ice core and we thought it was around eight hundred thousand years old from just from the ice flow modelling, we then analysed well not we my colleagues in France analysed beryllium ten in profile on the core and they found the biggest spike in the whole core 
just around where we thought 780,000 years was. Okay. And so then they said, okay, this is, the, this is the magnetic reversal. Now we can fix that based on the date we have from geological signals. That's amazing. You have to chain together so many um, bits of scientific information and so many different science stories into one coherent you know, narrative where uh, all, all the arguments support each other. And um, I, I've said it a few times on here before, but it, I, I'll say it again. Like I'm really impressed by people who do paleoclimate. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it's not if you're scared of error bars. It's not. Is it's it for that for you? <laughs> it, it can be true. I mean, some. Of, yeah, you're right. Uh, it, 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 many of us come from a physics. Oh, I'm from a chemistry background. Many high school people come from a physics background. So they so they do like things to be precise. But there are also people who come from a more geological background where it's a little bit more um, storytelling. They're, they're used say. to it. They're used so, to saying, well, it's okay that the air bars are kind of big. We still need to, you know, what kind of you know, science narrative can we come up with? Yeah, I think in the... I would just defend some bits, though. For instance, when you measure the carbon dioxide in the ice, whereas most of the things we're measuring in the ice are what we call proxies. So you measure water isotopes in the ice but what you're trying to talk about is temperature, and it's a proxy, and there's a long chain of reasoning that really should involve some big global models mm. to get from temperature to oxygen isotopes. But when you measure CO2 in the ice, you are actually measuring the CO2 yeah. concentration in the air. It's not a proxy. You're actually measuring the CO2 concentration in a sample of air. So that's pretty precise to, yeah. to you know, 1% or less. Yeah. Um, and my, my comment wasn't really meant to the criticism, no. more of a statement of um, there's some, it, it's heroic. <laughs> we can do this anyway. Yeah, we I wasn't taking it as a criticism. Okay, I'm glad. <laughs> no, I mean, the brilliant, the brilliant tent that we were just talking about, it's, it's not precise in the sense of how do you get from a particular strength of magnetic field to beryllium 10 concentration is very complicated and very uncertain. But nonetheless, where do I see the biggest brilliant 10 peak in the ice? That's pretty unequivocal. Mm. And that's going to be the last time the, the field reversed. That's going to be the thing that gives the biggest change you could possibly get. Yeah. So. so you have these markers that you can tie to specific times pretty well. And that helps you, um, you know, pin down uh, time to, to associate certain uh, dates with certain positions in the ice core. Like you said, dating the ice. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still, that is still pretty uncertain. I mean, at 800,000 years in that older size, we, we put an error bar of plus or minus 6,000 years on it, which is, mm. you know, it's a lot when you're trying to get, when you're trying to understand mechanisms. Yeah. But the positive thing is that the things that, the climate itself, which is in the, the water isotopes, and the things that cause climate change, like carbon dioxide and volcanic eruptions, are in the same ice core. So the relative uncertainty in the age between the forcing and the and the response is quite small and because the whole purpose of this or a large part of the purpose of this is to understand how the climate system works the fact that you've got something causing a climate change and the result of the climate change well pinned down to each other mm. it's slightly less important to know exactly when that happened mm. as long as you know that they both happened at the same time yeah yeah, I was just thinking about how um, I saw you gave a talk. This is a little bit different topic, so I should, before I kind of cut you off, is there anything else you wanted to say about dating, dating the ice? About, or do you feel like we covered that? I think we, I think we covered right. the big parts of it. I think we covered it. Later, later on, you can ask me whether we hope to get older ice. Yeah, o older ice. Older than, ice than, than eight hundred thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the epica or is that that's that's beyond epica? Beyond. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, beyond epica. Um, yeah. So the. Uh, 
I saw you give a talk at EGU a couple of years ago, and I don't remember the specific topic. I'd have to I'd have to look it up, and I didn't I didn't do that beforehand. But um, this is another aspect to your work, which which I really um, I really like this sort of approach where um, you were presenting a really simple dynamical system kind of model of you know, what are the oscillations in the climate system. And again, you, I don't remember the specific details, but I remember being really, I find that sort of approach really inspiring where you boil you know, a complex system down to its simplest elements. And it's really exciting when it works well, when you, found, when you think you've found some of the main control mechanisms you know, that, that govern some aspect of the climate system, whether it's mean temperature or mean carbon dioxide, something like that. Um, so in it, uh, it's a real, it's a real skill knowing how to select the parts of a complex system that are, that you feel like are the real main drivers of, of how it works. Um, so I don't know if you happen to remember the specific, so I, you know, I think I know what you must be talking know. about, which must be the, the so two years ago. I think. Yeah. The work that I did with, um, some people in UCL, Cronus Sadakis, and some people in uh, Louvain, Louvain-la-Neuve in Belgium, uh, Michel Crucifi and uh, colleagues, which was about trying to understand the cause of what we call the mid-Pleistocene transition, mm. which is when in paleoclimate you, you can see that the climate, the ice ages used to come and go before this mid-Pleistocene transition, which was around a million years ago. They used to come and go every 40,000 years, mm. and since then they've come and gone every more or less 100,000 years. Mm. And the question is, why did that happen? Because it looks as though everything to do with Earth's orbit and therefore with things causing climate change were the same. And so, yeah, as you say, the idea was to come up with the simplest possible model. Yeah. That just, just a few equations, a few boxes. Ex- explains... Possibly a better word is described, actually, what happened. Uh, so I think um, I think that approach is very powerful, but it has to be used properly. I I used to be a little bit disdainful about that kind of modelling, only because I thought it didn't really explain anything physically. But now I realise that what it does, having done it, <laughs> now I realise what it does. It, <laughs> now it doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't exactly explain things physically, but it, it describes the dynamics of the system. Yes. very simply, and therefore allows you to ask the right questions of the physical models, yes. which were otherwise, otherwise you were asking a very general question. And now, so, so in this particular case, before we were asking, what caused these cycles to change from 40,000 to 100,000 years? Mm-hmm. Whereas now we're asking, okay, it looks as though there was a bigger energy barrier to getting rid of an ice sheet after 100,000 years. What could have caused that mm-hmm. change in energy barrier? And then you're on to physical mechanisms that we, that, that we sort of understand, like did the CO2 concentration of the atmosphere change? Did the, or, or well, the, the two main hypotheses, did the, did the CO2 concentration of the atmosphere change, meaning that it was a bit colder and therefore harder to get rid of an ice sheet? Or did the ice sheets themselves change in the sense that the sediments underneath them were different so that, it was, so that they flowed differently and it was harder to get rid of them? Mm-hmm. And that, so, so I think doing it that way enables you to ask a very clear physical question that should then lead to uh, the the kind of underlying dynamics that that you've described. Right. Yeah. The, David Marshall, the oceanographer, um, he's fond of saying that simple models help you sharpen the question. That's a phrase that I've seen him use. That it you know, it doesn't describe the full system in detail, but it helps you just as you've described. You know, pick out a specific. I'm thinking of that end member concept again, where you identify clear end members and yep. their behavior and say, okay, right now we can interrogate a more sophisticated model that has more processes in it, uh, and we can test those two end members to, to see what we can learn. 
Well, it's also, um, I mean, it's, it's the, the models, and that's where I just put it, but it's also the data it allows you to ask that. So, so now the way I just put that particular discussion, now we can say, okay, so we need, this is going to lead on to the next bit, that's good. Mm. We can say, well, so if one of the hypotheses is that, it, it, that there was a bigger energy barrier because there was less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, can we find that out? Well, we haven't yet got an ice core going back to a million years, so and? can we find that out? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, how could we find that out? <laughs> Sorry, that was... <laughs> no, it's good. I like it. It's, it's all good, yeah. <laughs> so we, with the International Ice Core community as a whole has, has come up with some priorities, and one of the priorities is to get ice older than the 800,000 years we've already got, mm-hmm. and in particular to go through this transition yeah. when the ice age dynamics seem to have changed. And this is the Beyond Epica. So the European project. version of it mm-hmm. is called Beyond Epica. Okay. Um, there are other countries who are also interested in drilling. Um, and it, I suspect it will actually take several efforts to be really sure that we've solved it. The, the issue is to find where we get older ice, and that's not straightforward. Pe- people, people's assumption tends to be that to get older ice we want somewhere that's thicker. But actually that doesn't help us, because the reason we didn't get older ice in 800,000 years in the drilling we did so far is because you have... Obviously the ice sheet is very cold at the surface. Where we were drilling it was minus 50 at the surface, and there's... It's relatively warm at the bottom because there's geothermal heat coming from the inside of the Earth. Mm. And it means and the ice is acting as an insulator between the two. And it, if, if you get very thick ice, the ice is such a good insulator that it can actually be melting at the bottom. Mm. And at this particular place where we got oh, the 800,000-year-old ice, it's actually very slowly melting at the bottom. About I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Less, less than a millimetre a year, but mm. enough to take off the very oldest ice. So we actually want to find somewhere where there's either less geothermal heat, so that there's less heat, warming it or it's a little bit thinner right. so that the ice isn't insulating it. So the upper part of the ice can actually insulate the lower part. Um, that's a little bit simplistic of a description but it just gives me a picture of yeah the ice yeah. that's down below is kind of it's, it's like the top layer of ice is a blanket and so if there is a decent amount of geothermal heat coming up it can melt that lowest ice. Yeah. Okay yeah. Okay. I mean it's it's Really, no different from actually from when I was in the field this year and it was extremely cold outside my sleeping bag but and I was a source of heat, and the inside yeah. of the sleeping bag was very warm. Yeah, so if you have a good enough sleeping bag, you can be totally toasty, even yeah. though you're sitting in the middle of Antarctica, yeah, in the exactly. middle of nowhere. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's an effort you're you're part of now. Yeah. Yeah. So we've just actually been told that we've got some European funding again. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> well, hope, sorry, and, and ten countries are involved okay. um, around Europe. The same countries that drilled the previous ice core. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it requires not just European funding, but national logistic effort as well. Um, and we've found the place. Over the last three years, my colleagues have been doing geophysics to find where would be a good place. we found what we think is the best place we can. And it, you know, we can't guarantee there'll be old ice at the bottom, but it's, it shouldn't be melting at the bottom. Uh, it's got a nice flat bed, so it shouldn't be folded at the bottom. Um, so we think there's a good chance. And so the drilling should start uh, the year after next. Okay, that's and great. It'll take about three to four years. And what we've said is that we want to get one and a half million year old ice. And the reason for that number is we think we need a, a good number of these 40,000 year cycles to compare with the, the longer cycles you get in the more recent part. And that if you, you know, if you only got to a million, we wouldn't actually answer the question of what was the difference between the period before a million and the period after. Because you need good statistics, so you need enough of the cycles to be able to make some statistical exactly. statement. 
And the, and the point is, we'll be able to get the carbon dioxide concentration directly. There have been estimates of carbon dioxide in that earlier period, which come from ocean marine sediments, where they look at um, another isotope, boron-11, um, which, um, because boron chemistry is dependent on the pH, the acidity of the ocean, and the pH of the ocean is dependent on the carbon dioxide yeah. transferring across the air-sea interface. And so indirectly, by measuring this boron isotope, you can you you can get an estimate of the carbon dioxide that the ocean was in equilibrium with, but it's much bigger error bars than measuring it in an ice core, and quite contentious as to whether you're really measuring that because unfortunately the the shelled creatures that preserve the boron in in the cal in what should be a calcium lattice, but they preserve a little bit of boron. They're, they're very clever little creatures that seem to be able to control their local environment, so sometimes what they're incorporating in their shells isn't really reflecting the ocean environment they're in, it's reflecting some very local fluid that they've managed to create while they're growing the shell. So it's a little bit uncertain how wow. good how good these some of these geochemical properties can be. So as they're growing their shells they can change the chemical environment locally. Well essentially they have to. I mean you mm. couldn't grow a you couldn't grow a carbonate shell in an acidic environment or even in a non-alkaline environment at all so they have to change a little bit but um, it's a question of how much you can still see what's outside their local environment and it it looks calibrations make it look as though it does work Mm. but nonetheless theoretically it's a little bit hard to see why it should always work well I was just thinking about uh, whoever came up with that idea (laughs) that these are sort of amazing, you know, things to think about. These uh, so many different spatial scales are involved, and so many different time scales are involved, and the, there's so many potential connections between them. So, how far back did you say that? Hopefully, the Beyond Epoca will go over one, a million, one and a half million, million is what we're aiming at. Okay, so. yeah. So, yeah, that's great that it's, it's been funded, and um, it's great that that's, that's going ahead. Okay, so we, we haven't signed the contract yet, so uh, I'm jumping the guns. Okay, <laughs> it's been it's been. Um, yeah, the grant has been offered, and now we're, but but it still has to be signed. So I'm, okay, I'm not supposed to say it's been funded. Oh, okay, so if, uh, not not yet funded. It's okay for people to know that it's fine for people to know that, that that we're on the funding list, but I'm not allowed to say that we're funded. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Th- is is the contract stage ever really? Uh, I mean, is that ever a serious problem, or is it? I think is just uh, more. No, I mean there can be conditions put in and, and certain bits of expenditure that you've asked for that they tell you, you you're not allowed that one. But oh, right. It's, but no, generally not. Generally it's okay. Generally it's okay. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so then you, you'll... I mean, this is sort of a question that I imagine you must get all, all the time, um, but it would be interesting to know your thoughts about... Yeah, so if, you, if, if we manage to get that very, very old ice, the 1.5 million year ice... Um, are there things that we can learn about you know, climate change and anthropogenic climate change based on those old records? Obviously, there were no humans back then, but you can still learn something about how the climate system operates so overall. The, yes, but the link, I have to admit, is slightly more tenuous than in some paleoclimate research. I, mean, I can't deny that the reason I'm very keen to do this is just because I'm really excited to understand how the Ice Age cycles work and how they've worked in the past. So I, I would I would argue for doing it just on the the space exploration argument that mm. it's just extremely fascinating and culturally it's something we should be interested in. I like that. But but having said that, what we're really trying to do is understand the carbon how the carbon cycle works under a range of different conditions. And 
if it is the carbon cycle that changed over that transition between the different cycles, then understanding why it changed is, is you know, tenuously is related to how the ocean takes up carbon from the atmosphere and therefore how it will how it will take it up in the future. Yeah. Um, tenuously in the sense that until models can reproduce the way things changed in the past, you have to worry that they might be missing a process that might be important for the future, but but only tenuously in the, on the basis that I couldn't point to a particular aspect of future climate that's absolutely dependent on knowing this. Right, right. Well, I know I'm biased as a scientist, but I, I'm totally sympathetic to the argument of, like, we should just know things. <laughs> we should learn as much as we can about the, the world around us. And, you know, in that process, uh, it's just worth, worth doing to me. You know, well, I do think it. people are fascinated by how climate has changed in the past and, and why it has in the same way that they are fascinated by what's out there in space and yeah. you know, what's, inside a, what's inside a subatomic particle and things like that yeah. that don't have an, necessarily have an immediate application. However, having said that, I mean, there is a, you know, just understanding the climate system better over the time, over... Obviously, we're not... We're not worried about how climate's going to change over the next 1.5 million years. So when I say timescales, I don't mean that timescale. What I mean, we're looking at changes that occur over centuries to millennia in ice that's 1.5 million years old. And we are interested in how climate changes over centuries to millennia. Yeah, yeah. We um, we usually talk... Are you you okay shifting gears? Is there any other bits that you want to talk about? I saw you were just checking. Is it 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 recording okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. Every now and then I just kind of glance over. And um, the reason I glance over every now and then is I did have it crash one time. uh, And that was before I really checked it a lot. Uh, So I had a whole conversation with uh, an oceanographer here, Alex Brearley, um, and it, it just, I just lost it. I <laughs> just lost everything. So, but everything's working fine. It's recording, no issues. Uh, so, I try not to, you know, I think it would be a bad form for me to just stare at it the whole time. So, I try not to be too obsessive about it. But it's good to good to glance over every now and then, just make sure. But, um, but yeah, we, we usually like to talk about um, kind of people's pathway into science, you know, the kind of route that you took. Because there's so many different, um, there's so many different stories. Uh, so many different like potential ways that that that, that happens to folks, uh, and yeah, it's, it'd be good to hear about yours. So I don't know, like, um, where where did you grow up? So so I grew up in outer outer London, the London suburbs. Yeah. Um, and I suppose I fairly early on thought that I wanted to be a scientist, but I couldn't say exactly what sort of a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to university in Cambridge. So yeah. I haven't gone very far <laughs> uh, in Churchill College. Yeah. Um, Were your folks involved in, in science, or what, did they? No, uh, no not you know, at what all. My do? father was in the travel business, and my yeah. mother was a teacher, but not a science teacher. Mm. So. Um, did you get some encouragement from from them? Some. Uh, they were keen for me to do whatever I wanted to do. I think I don't think they. I mean, I think my. I think they liked the idea that I would that I wanted to do science, but I don't think that they would have minded if I wanted to do something else. Yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah, support. You know, they were they were in a layperson's way interested in science, but not not obsessively in any way. So. Yeah. But university, I, I mean, in Cambridge, you do natural sciences if you're doing those kind of science subjects so you don't actually have to quite choose what you're going to do early on so I must admit I thought I was going to do physics when I arrived but I ended up doing chemistry as my main subject mm-hmm. yeah. foolishly I didn't do 
earth sciences, which given that I'm now in an earth sciences department is slightly strange. <laughs> I think you figured it out. I think you're okay. <laughs> I think you've worked your way around that. In one. a similar way, I didn't do I didn't do a geography O level. That was the exams that we the, the precursor to GCSEs. I didn't do a geography O level either, which seems slightly strange. And I now work on the polar regions. It's so. okay. I think you've caught up. I think but, you're good. <laughs> so I so I did that at university, and um, when I left university, I didn't actually think I wanted to do a PhD. Um, I was so I was looking at jobs, chemical jobs in industry like. Um, Kodak the photographic company and Glaxo the pharmaceutical company and then I saw an advert for the British Antarctic Survey to go to the Antarctic for just summer seasons and mm. work on lead pollution in snow oh, right. in fact, uh, looking at how lead well how how you register lead arriving in Antarctica over, over time um, and I just thought well my first thought was well I'm not the roughy tuffy Antarctic thought so that's not for me and then I thought but actually I've got everything it says on the mm. on the advert so why don't you apply and I got the job so the interesting going to the Antarctic job as opposed to the what I now think would be rather boring <laughs> pharmaceutical company or doomed photographic company <laughs> job uh, yeah. I shouldn't say that it's probably somebody from Kodak listening who doesn't think it's they're not. They're, they've they've switched into something else, haven't they? They haven't. They they have their hands in a lot of different. I don't, I'm not that really that familiar with them, but my my impression I've gotten from afar is that they've 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 shifted their business model a bit and I, are involved with di- different things than what they're traditionally known. Yeah, I think for. they do other things, but making making standard photographic film is not is not a successful business for some years. <laughs> no, it's now it's very, a very niche thing that just uh, you know. There's a few kind of artistic <laughs> folks who want it, who like to do that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so you did this this field work. This, so I uh, so I so I applied to Bass and got the job at Bass, which took me to the Antarctic in 1980. Mm. Just showing how old I am. And I stayed for generally people stayed at Bass in my position stayed at Bass for three or four or five years and then moved on to something else on contracts. And I did after five years I moved on to a place called the Water Research Centre, which was looking at trace metals actually in sewage. That's mm. what I was taken on to do, and then Where I ended up working in Europe. It's um, on the Thames, just to the west of London, okay. called Medenham. And I also worked on European legislation on water quality. But I was only there for less than a year, and then I was lucky, but for a, a bad reason. Uh, the government decided... That it was going to boost Antarctic research and boost British Antarctic survey, mm-hmm. and that was a response to the Portland War. Right. Fact, it, was, yes. it was the wish to invest more in <laughs> making sure the UK had a presence in the South Atlantic and the Antarctic yep. after the Portland War. That's, so, that's an interesting bit of, of history there. Yeah. So Bass was Bass was given a lot of money to expand. In fact, this this office you're sitting in was built on that money. So, mm. so it's not just me. <laughs> right. <laughs> the no. whole of this part of the building was built at that point. Um, and they also had some new posts, and so I was able to come back after less than a year into an established post at Bass, looking more at climate rather than pollution. Um, And then while I was at Bass, for the next few years, I I still haven't got a PhD at this point, of course, having having explained what I did. So while I was at Bass, I looked into how I could get a PhD, and uh, the obvious way would have been to register with the university and do a traditional PhD, but somebody in Cambridge said to me, well, why don't you go for the special regulation? I said, well, what are they? They said, well, if, you've, if you're a Cambridge graduate, 
then you can, after some time, submit published papers oh. for a PhD without mm. ever actually writing a thesis. Huh. And so, obviously, it has to be a somewhat higher quality than a standard thesis. It's, it's often used, I believe, by people in fields like law, where, where your main uh, publication route is through books and monographs rather than papers. But, mm. um, no, it's, so. so it can be more practical. It can be more in the sense of part of the job that you're doing already. You know, yeah. You're employed to do that sort of thing. Um, so so, uh, that, so I did it that way, and um, did that still exist? Can folks still? It does still exist. I think you have to be a Cambridge graduate to do it, unless they've changed the regulations. Okay. But, mm. um, and I still, I mean, I still had a proper viva, so I had a proper viva with um, examiners who are you know top people. John Glenn, who's a top glaciologist, and John Pyle, who's a top atmospheric chemist, were mm-hmm. my examiners. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I had a, I had a proper grilling about what I'd done, but it was just a question of pasting, of, of stapling some papers together, not necessarily on one topic. Which um, I admit is a bit of a cheat in a way, but it, <laughs> that's how I got my PhD. So then, I, and then I've, I stayed at Bass after that, and of course I was lucky as well in that climate change became such a hot topic that it was it became very topical, a little bit easier to get funding, certainly easier to find people to collaborate with, and stayed at Bass until six years ago when I won money from the Royal Society for a professorship which took me to the Earth Sciences Department in Cambridge. So what I say is that I did exactly the opposite of what I tell my students to do because I definitely think that it's a very good thing that students and uh, postdoctoral workers should go somewhere else, preferably abroad, to get experience in another lab, <laughs> and um, if possible. But it's not that's not an option for everyone necessarily. It's so. Not, but in my own case, I stayed in the same town, and when I finally moved, I moved two miles down the road. <laughs> right, still in, in Royston. <laughs> so yeah. I still live in Royston, but yeah. still, yeah. Uh, which is fifteen miles south of here. But but I yeah. So I moved from Bass to the Earth Sciences Department, which is two miles. Oh, I see that move. Your that office move, yeah, 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 my office yeah. move. When I finally moved institution, right, yeah. I went a whole two miles. <laughs> and of course, true. I'm still collaborating a lot with Bass um, because, <coughs> because <coughs> excuse me, yeah, you <coughs> they have the only ice core lab so far set up in the country, and it would have been it would have seemed very wasteful to build a, <coughs> to build another ice core lab two miles, two miles away. down the road. So, so we agreed that I could carry on using the labs here. Right. Yeah, the uh, oh, where was it? Where were they going with that? I forgot. The um, you left or you uh, left right as I came in because it was you know kind of summer twenty thirteen, which is roughly that's that's pretty much when I showed up. Okay. Um, so as soon as I showed up, you you in my mind you were already at Earth Sciences, but I imagine to everybody else here you were still probably oh that's a that's, I've been here forever. Yes, I've yeah. been here forever. So. I mean, I'm still a uh, still have a, what they call a fellowship, yeah. a bass fellowship. So. You can wear both hats. And you I can, can be sort of wear both hats. Yes, yeah. I mean I'm paid through the science department, but right. You still, still have a blue badge. I still, still have a badge, yeah. which means you're on the staff in a way. <laughs> and the, the professorship I have is very nice because it's because it's funded by the Royal Society specifically to allow people to carry on doing research. So in theory, I'm I, I don't have as part of my job description. I don't have to do any teaching or any um, administration in practice, of course, as a good citizen. Mm-hmm. I do things, yeah. but um, nonetheless, it gives you an immense power to say no if you really <laughs> don't want to do something. Right, yeah. Um, so I, I like to ask this group of questions, and, and thanks for that. They gave me a good sense of your kind of pathway, and it, um, 
I'm always struck by like um, often these kind of pathways. It's 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 a function of you know interest and opportunity, right? Like, what are you interested in, and what are, and what are the sorts of things you want to work on, and what opportunities are available? Uh, I mean, like you mentioned, if Bass, if there hadn't been that big investment in, in Bass at just the right time, then other opportunities may have looked more appealing to you, or may have opened up to you in different ways. So there's no, there's a bit of you can't control all the elements of it, and you have to be okay with that, and you have to accept that somehow, to be okay with the uncertainty of what you know your path might look like in science. And that can be hard. It's a little bit hard for me sometimes, like accepting the the uh, idea that, well, uh, I mean, where I end up and uh, some, some of those factors are you know much larger moving pieces than that I can fully grapple with and that I can have any influence over you know whatsoever. So as much as one might like a town or an institute or a place to live, you know, it, it's a uh, can be a hard, a hard life uh, trying to work, make something work in science. And what I mean by hard is uh, you might have to jump around a lot potentially, and, and it's it's a privilege to be able to to be able to jump around because that option is not available to everyone. But, um, but yeah, it's it's it, it's uh, it can be hard in that way. Yeah, no, it, no, it is. It's very. I mean, so I was, as you say, I was lucky because an opportunity came up at just the moment I needed it. Yeah. And at that point, science wasn't quite as international as it is now. So mm-hmm. whereas now I would I would be aware of postdoctoral opportunities in other countries. At that point, I probably wasn't really mm. aware of what else was available. Um, and it does just rely on the right thing coming up in the right place. And of course, as soon as you've got family issues, which which might be a partner and family of your own or it might be elderly parents mm-hmm. um, then you're kind of restricted that's in the equation as well yeah that has to be has to be part of the story I know a lot of yeah. scientific couples who have what we call the two body problem where they're both scientists both looking for positions in science in fairly similar areas and really struggling to find it in the same geographic location it's so hard yeah the, this part of England is a little bit kind of nice for that because I think your chances might be you know one's chances might be a little bit higher to make that work because there's so many institutes within a pretty small you know a reasonably small geographic area um, uh, I know a lot of the uh, well some of the folks who some of the scientists who work here like their partners also work in Cambridge some work in London and uh, you know, some folks, there are a few who like live in London and make the make the commute out because that's a, an easier solution for them. But uh, but not not every you know in the states especially you could, things are so spread out. Um, you know, you've got this gigantic continent and you can there are there are jobs but they might be on totally different coasts and that can exacerbate this two body problem. So uh, yeah, it's it's hard and there are no I mean. It's it's just, um, but but a lot of people are going through it. You know, there's not, a, you know, for the folks who are struggling with that, it's kind of. I don't know if it, uh, it it must help in some way, kind of knowing that there are lots of other folks who are going through that. It's not not just you. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. suppose the positive thing is some of these um, grant schemes we we're talking about, like uh, Royal Society research fellowships and. I guess no research fellowships. I'm not quite so sure how mobile they are, but they they're mobile in the sense that you can you can take them once you've won them. You can take them somewhere else. Yeah. So that That's can right. help solve the problem. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, like if your partner or maybe your older parents are located elsewhere, you might be able to move a bit closer to them, possibly if you're here. Yeah. So I, I like to ask this group of questions, and um, it's it's all about different things you've kind of learned along the way. So uh, you know, just 
and uh, whatever you kind of feel comfortable sharing about your what you've learned and your experience. So, what's something you've learned about uh, research, kind of in general? And these are pretty pretty wide questions, and you know, feel free to you, know, you can answer them however you want with kind of and it, it don't. They don't have to be amazing insights, you know. Don't don't worry. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think um, so. What came into my mind when you said it was actually something that um, came up in something I was reading yesterday, but that I I was reading it. I was thinking, yes, I really agree with that. It's um, not to be too perfectionist, because if you wait for your research results to unequivocally answer everything to the last moment, you'll never publish. A paper, right. yes. And if you never publish a paper, you might as well not have done the work. Mm. So, uh, although I know there are people who very strongly feel they should only publish really good papers that are very comprehensive and cover everything, and I kind of appreciate why they feel like that. I think it's a bit unrealistic, and and it's not necessarily conducive to actually progress because if you if you wait five years to write something, you could have where well, you could have written ninety percent of it after two years. You're delaying science by three years. Yeah, for sure. There's this phrase. It's kind of cliche, but I think it's true that the whole uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good sort of thing. The the idea that if you wait for something perfect, then that's preventing you from doing something that is good <laughs> at yeah. the moment. So that, I'm not saying that's the thing I think about research, but that's what came into my head. So that's probably the best thing to say. Yeah, that's that's one of the, the bits of wisdom you've you've gleaned over the years. What about field work? What's something you've learned about field work and all the things that can go wrong? Um, uh, that's just being flexible. Um, mm. You, you. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can you can make a fantastic Gantt chart showing what's what the schedule is going to be for your field work, but it'll probably fail on the very first day when the aircraft can't actually fly you into the field. In our case, last season, it was I was in the field about two weeks after I would have expected to be based on a chart. So you just have to be really flexible and not be, as I normally am at home, an impatient person. <laughs> you have to learn to learn to let go. That's another realm where you have to like deal with uncertainty and let go and accept the uncertainty and know that it's just a part yeah, of the process. There's, there's nothing you can do about when the next aircraft's going to come, for example. So yeah. That could be down to the weather and down to sometimes maintenance, things that need to get done. And, um, or just that someone else has truly become more of a priority than you on that particular day. <laughs> yeah, uh, for, for various reasons. Sometimes illness, sometimes people get sick in Antarctica and they have to be evacuated, they have to be taken, taken elsewhere. So yeah, being flexible. I meant to ask you earlier, like, in terms of the things that can go wrong, um, so I occasionally hear folks around here, the, you know, around Bass, talk about how um, you have to worry about your, your drill not getting frozen into the hole that you've created, right? You, once you started drilling... This is the kind of hot water drilling approach. So yeah, the hot so the hot water drilling they're certainly worried about it getting frozen in. Without without drilling where you're drilling a core, you don't you don't have water around, but what can happen is that the the chippings you you're still drilling in a fluid that keeps the hole open. Mm. And what can happen is that the chippings that you're creating from from well, you when you're drilling you're creating an annulus of chippings that leaves the the drill in the, the, the cylinder of ice in the centre and those chippings can gather around the drill and stick it from above they can gather above the drill and stick it cause it to stick or the hole closing if you haven't got the density of the fluid in it right the hole closing can also cause the drill to stick 
So you have to get uh, the you have to get fluid down into that hole that you're drilling, and it has to be at the right density to kind of keep the hole That's propped right. open because there are these enormous pressures yeah. at play that so, normally would. So at 600 meters, where we're at the bottom, you've essentially got 60 atmospheres more or less mm-hmm. of, of pressure that that would normally be downwards, but you've opened a hole, so now those 60 60 atmospheres of pressure are trying to push inwards on the hole, essentially, and so you have to put something in a fluid keep it open we put in in this case we put in a fluid that wasn't quite the right density so there's still a few atmospheres of pressure at the bottom but not enough to cause a problem what can you do to prevent the chippings from becoming a problem uh, well they, if the drill's working properly they should go into a chamber and not mm. appear at the top of the drill so it's just okay. maintaining the drill properly as uh, i understand it i mean i'm not i'm not the engineer who does right. the drilling so you, you, um, i trust the engineers to do that right that's good. Yeah, you yeah you have to right specialists. We need people who specialize in you know very specific activities like that. Yeah, I mean we 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 were physically there helping with the drilling and handling the core, but there there were also people with engineering experience in the team who who could look after the drill. Yeah. What about um, to get back to our kind of what have you learned questions? What's something you learned about um, like academia in general, <laughs> navigating that? Which can be different, very different from just research. That's obviously much broader. Well, okay, I'm guessing that sometimes in answer to that question, people talk about how difficult it is to negotiate academia and how difficult people can be. I personally, in my field of icicle science, I find most of the academics I work with are really friendly people, really that, nice people who I like working with, and international programs are really, really enjoyable because. Mm-hmm. You're working with people from different cultures who are all because we work in the field together, not just on on science together at conferences. But most of us have actually spent time in Greenland or Antarctica with each other, including at the last time I was in Antarctica, I was in the field with some of the early career researchers who now have become the mid-career researchers mm-hmm. who are leading their field in their country. So you really get to know those people and. Um, and it's a, a really nice community because because of that, because you've become friends with them in the field as well. That's good. It so doesn't exactly answer the question of what I've learned about academia, but it's... Uh, well, I guess it, I mean, it's a positive lesson, right, that, you, that there are communities, there are academic communities that can feel really collaborative and can feel really supportive. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that not every field is like that. I mean, I have a friend who's um, trying to, to get into uh, biochemistry and she's given me the impression that, um, and this I don't have any personal experience with this, but the impression I've gotten from her is that it feels much more competitive than, than what I'm used to. It feels much more kind of cutthroat than what I'm used to, whereas I, I think um, it's good to hear that it's this way for your field, but for oceanography as well. I think for the most part, it, it feels pretty collaborative and pretty like a, like a community. Like we're, we all have broadly the same objective, and yes, occasionally there is some element of, of competition for you know funding and for getting the papers out there that, that we want to have out there. That doesn't seem to be at the forefront of everybody's mind. You know, the, at the forefront seems to be people are excited about the science and they're excited about what's happening and they want to see that happen. And they and I think that's, that's healthy. <laughs> yeah, that's generally I think that's true. I mean, of course there are elements of competition, but I think it maybe helps in our field, certainly on the field side. You know, we're going to the, the new ice core. We're going to drill to get to 1.5 million years. No one's going to fund. No one country's going to fund that. 
so it has to be collaborative so we have to all find a way that we're all going to get something out of it right yeah and that's probably the same with some of the ocean drilling programs and it's probably to be honest true with some of the modeling work that you do where you know there aren't that many big models and there aren't that many people working on each big model so absolutely yeah we all rely on each other like crazy you know it's it's i made a comment about that once about um often when we you know there are these schemes for evaluating you know investigators you know for fellowship proposals and we, we all like to throw around this word independent which i understand what folks you know intend when they say well we want to find an independent investigator and okay it means that you're able to come up with a with a project um, through your own drive, and you're the you're the person who's willing to push that through. But independent is a funny phrase to use because we do we need each other <laughs> really like crazy. Like you can't get a serious piece of work done these days, I don't think, without you know, involving a, a decent number of other people and and uh, you know and, and helping each other and supporting each other. Um, so yeah, what, I wonder if it's just the scale, like you said, the scale of the problem. And the kind of there's a necessity for collaboration, and in a way that encourages people to to be supportive. Um, I don't know; I could be wrong, but I think most people would prefer to work in that kind of environment, right? There's a, there's an advantage to us all kind of um, you know supporting each other as much as we as much as we can. Um, I think one one nice thing I'm, I'm getting off on a little tangent here, but that's okay. I think one nice thing in oceanography is. Um, we we seem to do a decent job of trying to figure out what everybody else is working on at the moment so we don't accidentally kind of step on each other's toes and um this um this this kind of connects back to something we said at the beginning when we were talking about um you know, mapping out what you're going to work on and what you have worked on um that you know, it, it's maybe there are those few folks who will try to have a, a big footprint and maybe claim too too wide of an area, <laughs> maybe an area that's a little bit bit wider than is warranted. Um, that uh, it, it's it's arguably kind of healthier for if you can kind of be aware of what people are working on and try to see how you can complement that. Try to see how your work can fit into the bigger you know mosaic of what's going on. Um, of course, what helps with that is being in the community. Um, but yeah, it, so the. Uh, we can go back to our, <laughs> your go back to our questions. Yeah, um, not that you know this. This list I have here is never intended to be a march through a set of questions. You know, it just. Um, but I think it, it's nice to have some prompts for for discussion sometimes. Um, well, something you learned about writing. Do you like writing? Is it a uh, process I, I, you enjoy? I think I like writing. <laughs> That's to say, while I'm doing it, I'm often. <laughs> Feels so I'm in agony, but, but I, I like the pro, I like the process of having written. So, so I probably do like writing. I I think I write in a different way from how I think I hear a lot of other people writing. And that when people say to me, "How long does it take you to write a paper?" Hmm. I can give one or two answers because actually writing a paper I can probably do in a couple of days. Hmm. And it's a pretty good draft by the time I've written it, whereas I know lots of people, they write, you know, they send you, they say, I'm now ready to speak to my co-authors, here's draft number 24. And you know, I look at it and think, how long have you spent? But but why I say I could give two answers is because I, I tend to write the paper in my head for many weeks, possibly even months beforehand. Mm. Okay. So where I'm sort of thinking, what am I going to say? So that by the time I come to put pen to paper, I think I pretty much have the story in my head already. Yeah. 
you're you're a, an archer and you're spending a long time drawing the bow back and you're pulling the bow back, pulling it back, and then one day you're ready to like, okay, I think I'm I'm ready to let this go. I think, I think that must be how it is, and then I, and I I think I write fairly fluently, so that's why I say I, I do enjoy writing in a way, or even though I, I'm always thinking I'll never get this finished, but I think I write pretty fast and fluently, um, and I'm not bad at telling a story. So. Yeah, well, uh, and I like I like that insight of that you have you have spent a lot of time planning it, and it is possible. And maybe, I mean, for me, I probably couldn't do that in my head too well, but I could probably do that reasonably well with a bunch of post-it notes you know, spread out all, all over a table, like the ones that you're sitting in front of here. Um, I haven't actually started properly writing this uh, fellowship proposal, but I feel reasonably confident that once I start, it should it should be. I, I, it should go kind of smoothly because I've already sort of mapped out a lot of the big pieces, which I think is sort of what you're saying. Yes, there's a whole. Yeah. I should say there's a whole bunch of post-it notes on the table in front of me that Dan has <laughs> written. That about there must be about fifty post-it notes, <laughs> individual bits <laughs> of the proposal. Yeah, one of my uh, colleagues came in here and uh, said he got very concerned, and uh, he's considering uh, institutionalizing me that maybe this is a cry for help of some kind. <laughs> but I'm fine. He, I promise. He didn't change any of them around to ruin your proposal. <laughs> I don't think so. Put some uh, put some bomb in there and some uh, some problem. Um, how about that? How about teaching and supervising? What's something you learned about about that? Um. Well, that's tricky. I enjoy it. so teaching and supervising. I enjoy it while I'm doing it, but it's but I kind of dread it in advance because mm. it's it's a big time sink. Yeah, and it's only semi rewarding because you're never quite sure whether you're getting through to students. So you, I, I find when I'm teaching lecturing, it's quite a sea of blank faces often, and you're never quite sure whether you're getting through to them. Mm. It's only actually when you see, when you give a supervision where you've got two or three students in the room with you, like we be doing this afternoon, in fact, that you think, oh, they did actually get that. Yeah, okay, that's good. You can read body language and ask follow-up questions and read read faces and get more feedback um, in, in those small kind of sessions. I think yeah. I'm fairly uncomfortable teaching topics that I'm not one of the world's experts in. That's the only problem. So mm. obviously in a, you know... In an earth sciences department, there's only so many lectures about ice cores that the students need. Mm. So the, I should be capable of talking about paleoclimate in general, maybe climate in general, mm. uh, maybe the earth system in general. Mm. And as you go out in each of those broader concentric circles, I'm getting less and less comfortable because I know I'm talking about things where I'm no longer, certainly not the world expert, mm. no long, and probably no longer even expert, let alone... I don't mean an expert, but no longer expert, even in, in the sense of more so than the average well-read person. Mm. So. When you're talking about the sea of blank faces of that for kind of, under, I guess, undergraduate, yeah. large lecture kind of classes, um, do you think there's any role for technology to, you know, is there a way to get more feedback kind of in real time from, from a sea of students um, using some kind of, you know, some kind of approach that plugs into... <laughs> there the pro- the probably is, but I um, but I feel a little scared of it. I yeah. I feel it be quite. So, uh, I'm not quite sure what you've got in mind, but I can imagine they might have a, a button they could press if they'd really not understood something and wanted to go over it again. And I can well, imagine never getting to the end of a lecture. <laughs> well, I mean, this is. But please don't think I'm. I'm not giving advice. This is not me giving advice. But um, 
I was an instructor of physics for a couple of years, and um, uh, one of the big things in physics education that was really taking off when I was starting was the whole idea of um, you do this. It's called just-in-time teaching is one of the names that gets associated with it. And it's really focused on, um, you know, you have every maybe 10, 15 minutes or however appropriate, it, or whatever timing is appropriate, depending on what you're teaching, you have a question. So you throw a question up on the board and you get students to vote on it, uh, first anonymously. So you see, uh, you, know, you ask them some multiple choice question and see um, what everybody thinks about that question kind of in real time. And that gives you a little information about do people understand it. And you can then give students a couple of minutes to talk to each other, like to try to talk to each other about their audiences. So there's it kind of breaks up the structure of the lecture a little bit. And um, and then you can poll people again uh, and see if the numbers have changed. You know, have they shifted more towards the right answer or has it you know, diverged in some way? And um, it can be it can be uh, really good. It can be engaging because you're getting more more feedback, more information about you know how is the class feeling because I, I know what you mean about the sea of the sea of blank faces it can be um it can be kind of discouraging you know you're, if you really because it's, it's hard work to be up there in front of the class and trying to get something clear and you could be doing a perfectly wonderful job but for whatever reason folks might just not be plugged into it uh, maybe they're, they're tired that day or, or whatever and so the uh, having these kind of clicker questions as they're called sometimes because you might have some clicker-based, you know, system where the clickers are remote that you can use to vote. Um, sometimes that can break break things up, but then you have less control over the, um, you know, you, you maybe feel like you're letting go of the control a little bit because you you do have periods where you have to kind of turn it over to the students and let them do a thing. Uh, so it is a different world. It is a different world. Yeah. Yeah, I think but, teaching in Cambridge, at least in our department, is fairly traditional at the moment. I could imagine that. So just delivering. 50 minutes of material and I suppose that the the excuse for that is that the, the supervisions where you're one on three with people or something like that allow you to have a more personal instruction but yeah. I don't know whether that works for everybody mm. but uh, I'm sure that helps yeah having that uh, small group two to one three to one those groups yeah that that must be uh, I've I've seen well, just like we were talking about earlier, you get more direct feedback, and you can see people's kind of body language. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? We, we covered a lot. It's been good. It's Not been a good I don't know how long we've been. We've been really two hours. Yeah. I feel I've said everything that I <laughs> want to say, but then again, I don't know what, what your listeners might find interesting. All of this, all of this is good. Yeah, we we normally kind of we talk about science, uh, you know, specific projects, and kind of the way we did, and we talk about you know. Big, big scientific ideas the way that we did, and, and and it's nice to hear about like like what your experience was like, like getting into science, what that was like for you. Because um, I think a lot of our listeners um, are kind of, I mean, it, there's there's several different broad groups, but I think a lot of them are, are students who are kind of you know early on in their kind of educational careers, and they're they're thinking about different pathways, and they're thinking about which ways they might like to go, and it's really valuable to hear. People's different experiences and the sorts of things that has, um, that, that, and, and and the struggles too, and you know the and the uh, it is important to hear about not just the successes but the uh, the times when th- things didn't go well. Uh, you know, you mentioned applying for the for, for the, this grant, the ERC grant. You know, several times, four times. So I think it's really important for people to hear that. 
Um, it reminds me of this idea. I heard about, have you heard about the anti-CV? I've seen a couple of professors mm-hmm. do this where they, they post their CV and their anti-CV. Okay. <laughs> so their CV is, well, here's all my papers and my grants and my students. And then the anti-CV is, well, here's all the stuff I applied for that I didn't get okay. so that they can very transparently show like, uh, yes, if I show you my CV, you might be intimidated. I don't mean me, but I just mean, I'm imagining a professor saying this, you know, if I show you just my CV, you might be academically intimidated by all this, but let me show you all of my, (laughs) all the things that didn't work. And hopefully that will give you some encouragement that if things don't seem to be working out for you right now, that's could be normal, right? That's that a lot of people go through periods where it just doesn't seem to be working. And the important thing is to keep going and to don't give up. Um, when I say don't give up, I mean, that doesn't have to mean stay in science at all costs. It just means keep going. <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling? Fine. You're yeah. fine? Good? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that. That was really good. Okay. Thanks, thanks There you have it. My conversation with Professor Eric Wolf, FRS. You can find out more about Professor Wolf's work on his website at the Department of Earth Sciences, University of Cambridge. Uh, you can find out about the Waxwain project there, about, let me just take a look at it, see what else we got. We've got the Waxwain that we talked about. We have the uh, Beyond Ipica, the oldest ice project, which is a plan to drill an ice core reaching back 1.5 million years. To follow the podcast, at uh, ClimateSciPod on Twitter for updates, and I'll also um, talk about the updates on here, on the intros and outros. Hmm, I think that's it. Uh, I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter. Thanks for being patient with the monthly releases. That's the schedule that I'm on at the moment. Hopefully I'll be able to pick them up and make them more frequently. But, you know, for now, um, I'm going to go monthly because that is kind of reasonably sustainable for me. I think I can keep a month, once a month going uh, much more than that. <laughs> it's, 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 it worked for a while, but it's getting tricky. All right. Thanks for uh, listening. And uh, let me know if you have any feedback. Also, let me know if there are guests you want to hear. Um, You can make suggestions for guests. I can record these remotely. I kind of like to do them in person, but it's possible to do them remotely. So, yeah, take care. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.